This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. It wasn't just a big sitting at the Supreme Court. It was one of the biggest sittings in recent memory. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in cases involving abortion, gun rights, spiritual advisors at executions, the First Amendment, uh, state secrets privilege, and others. Uh, So the justices were were busy. I was really lucky to be in the courtroom. And joining me to talk about the November sitting at the Supreme Court is SCOTUS Blog's media editor, Katie Barlow. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. I feel like you need to take a deep breath after that November sitting. It's been quite the show, I'd say. A deep breath and then perhaps a nap, I think, would, be, would, also, <laughs> would also be in order. Uh, and, then, and then all of the, the Supreme Court reporters are also going to send thank you notes to the D.C. Circuit that we are not having to anticipate the president's, uh, the former president's, a battle over the January 6th documents arriving at the Supreme Court right. anytime soon. Although that could come up uh, after their oral argument, I think is scheduled for November 30th. So it could be a fun December for you. And there are just a few big cases then too, but one day at a time for the right. Supreme it's Court press corps. not arriving court. today, exactly. <laughs> one day at a time. Okay, so let's That's dive in month. with the, the major, major case on abortion, which is really two cases, because um, not only did you get a first row seat to history and in seeing this case argued, um, you covered them and and you have some insights for us inside the room. But let's talk about the the first case, which is by the abortion providers in Texas. And, And if you could tee it up for us and then we'll dive in with some questions about the case, where you think it's going and and what it was like to be in the room for what was close to three hours of oral argument. So I was not, technically I'm not in the first row. I'm sit in the second row. It's really funny because we've only been doing this for two months and the reporters have all kind of settled into the same seats. It's just like law school or something where there aren't assigned seats, but everybody sits in the same seats anyway. Uh, and my sort of chosen seat is in the second row. But, um, but anyway, so yeah, so there are two cases challenging the constitutionality of SB8 which is the Texas law that prohibits almost all abortions beginning in the sixth week of pregnancy, which is a point at which many women don't even know they're pregnant. And so under the Supreme Court's landmark decisions in Roe and Casey, there's a constitutional right to get an abortion up to the point at uh, which the fetus is viable, which is 24 weeks. And so similar laws imposing this six-week ban have been struck down because of the conflict with Roe and Casey. But the Texas law, as uh, many of our listeners are no doubt familiar, has this unusual enforcement mechanism that outsources enforcement of the laws to private individuals who bring lawsuits against anyone who provides an abortion or anyone who aids and abets an abortion, and then they can recover damages of uh, starting at $10,000. And so the initial efforts to block the, the enforcement of the law when it went into effect on September 1st uh, were unsuccessful. 
the majority in that case, the majority when the court issued that order on September 1st, acknowledged that there were serious questions about whether the law was constitutional, but said it also wasn't clear whether state officials and the anti-abortion activists whom the defendants had sued could enforce the law and therefore whether or not the court could intervene. So that's the background. So the providers came back to the court and then the federal government had gone to court in Texas after the initial efforts to get the law blocked were unsuccessful. And the cases before the Supreme Court this time around were focused on the procedural mechanism. Basically, could the Biden administration or anyone else sue in federal court to block the law before it's enforced against you? So I was outside the courtroom for oral argument and I had what was my first experience. There was a lot of activity. There were folks from both sides of it very peacefully, you know, putting on um, speakers and having um, protests back and forth. Um, But it was all peaceful. But I had the unique experience for the first time ever of being outside the court in the middle of all of that activity with my headphones in listening to the oral argument at the same time. Uh, They also had speakers out front playing them so people on the street could listen, which was great because, again, that's one of our new benefits post-pandemic or still in the middle of the pandemic, whichever way you choose to see it. But there was a lot of color commentary from the justices, of course, insightful questions. Um, It was a long oral argument. So gleaning what you can from where the justices revealed some of their thinking in those questions, where do you see the abortion providers case going? So there seem to be at least five, but maybe even six or seven votes for the providers. It turns out that Supreme Court justices don't like the idea that the Supreme Court can announce a right and then the state can prevent people from being able to go to federal court to vindicate that right, particularly when they have issued decisions that are intended to address that scenario. There was a lot of discussion, and I really wish I'd paid better attention in law school in a case called federal courts. Um, There's a lot of discussion of a case called Ex Parte Young, which holds that state officials can be sued in federal court to prevent them from enforcing unconstitutional laws. Um, Justice Kagan, as she so often does, kind of summed up where she was and where I think several of the justices were. And so here's Justice Elena Kagan. General Stone, I think what Justice Breyer is suggesting is that the entire point of this law, its purpose and its effect, is to find the chink in the armor of Ex parte Young. That Ex parte Young set out a basic principle of how our government is supposed to work and how people can seek review of unconstitutional state laws. And the fact that after, oh, these many years, some geniuses came up with a way to evade the commands of that decision as well as the command that the broader, even the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights. And to say, oh, we've never seen this before, so we can't do anything about it. Um, I, I guess I just don't understand the argument. And so then the state's argument was, well, you know, you can't get a federal court before the law is enforced against you. But once you violate the law, you can be sued 
And then you can argue, oh, look, the law is unconstitutional. Um, and then the Chief Justice's counterargument was, well, if the fines are stiff enough, nobody is going to violate the law because they could face this crushing liability. And that led to a soundbite. You, you really don't want to be on the other end of John Roberts' sarcasm. It's not a question of the federal courts being more open. It's a question of anybody having the capacity or ability to go to the federal court because nobody is going to risk violating the statute uh, because they'll be subject to suit for a million dollars. That that takes a lot of uh, fortitude uh, uh, to uh, undertake the prohibited conduct in that case. And under the system, it is only by undertaking the prohibited conduct that you can get into federal court. Well, Your Honor, individuals, again, to the extent that we're dealing with the sorts of very high stakes, prohibited conduct, fines, sanctions, et cetera, I might add this is specifically a damages action. It is capped at much less than that. That is a significant yeah, difference. My, my question is a hy- what we call oh, a hypothetical. Of course, <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice. Yeah, I found that moment. Uh, also, <laughs> I agree I would not want to be on the other side of that, what you would call a hypothetical. Um, that was an intense moment during oral argument. And then the other, the other point that really seemed to resonate with the justices was one that had been made even before they announced that they were going to take up the case in a friend of the court brief by a gun rights group. Because after the Supreme Court declined to block the law back in September, other states started murmuring about adopting similar abortion laws. Um, But then I think there was this realization among the justices, including the conservative justices, that, as Justice Breyer likes to say, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, that this enforcement mechanism could just as be, that this enforcement mechanism could just as easily be used by blue states. So here's Justice Brett Kavanaugh talking about this idea. Can I ask you about the <clears throat> implications of your position for other constitutional rights? The uh, amicus brief of the Firearms um, uh, Policy Coalition says, quote, this will easily become the model for suppression of other constitutional rights, with Second Amendment rights being the most likely targets, end quote. And it could be free speech rights. It could be free exercise of religion rights. It could be Second Amendment rights if this position is accepted here. The theory of the amicus brief is that it can be easily replicated in other states that disfavor uh, other constitutional rights. Your response? So that's insight from the justices. And to your point, it looks like there may be five, maybe six, maybe seven votes in the abortion providers' favor. The next question is, Of course, when do you think we will get a decision and how that ties into Dobbs? But before we dive into that, let's briefly touch on the federal government's case, uh, because the federal government came up right after the abortion providers, and there was um, some back and forth there as well. Yeah, so when are we going to get a decision? Who knows? I mean, I think that, that theoretically, if they were going to block the law, and there's some question about procedurally how they would do that, they could do that at any moment. It might take longer for them to issue a decision because even if there were six or seven votes in the abortion provider's favor uh, to allow the abortion provider's lawsuit to go forward, there are likely still to be one or two or three votes 
uh, to say that it, it couldn't go forward and those people are likely to want to write some sort of opinion. So it's hard to say. Um, the federal government's case was a tougher sell. I think that the conservative justices, particularly if the abortion providers cases and that case went first, it's going to go forward, um, you know, reluctant to give the Biden administration and future administrations sort of the keys to the kingdom to go out and sue states. And so here's the, the chief justice, John Roberts, talking about what he saw as the expansive power that the Biden administration was seeking. You say this case is very narrow, it's rare, it's, it's, it's particularly problematic, but the authority you assert to respond to it is as broad as can be. It's equity. You said we have the authority to sue states uh, under equity, which is a limitless, ill-defined authority. And I, I just wonder, I know you've been asked this question before, but if you could repeat your answer. What is the limiting principle? When we get another case down the road where it's a different uh, solicitor general who's making this argument in a different case, um, uh, what are we going to be able to point to that says, no, no, you can't invoke that broad equity power, or you can't say just because uh, uh, there's a state statute uh, uh, that uh, uh, is enforced by private parties, which is a very common phenomenon, that you then get to sue sue the states. I should say, though, that even if the Biden administration loses, and it seemed after the oral argument like they could very well lose, there's a little bit of a, a win for losing. The, the providers, one of my colleagues talked about this in the, in the press room after the argument, the providers petitioned for certiorari before judgment to skip the, the decision in the Court of Appeals and fast track its motion and to fast track its petition for cert before judgment had been sitting around for almost a month before the Biden administration came to the Supreme Court. So in essence, by bringing its case to the Supreme Court, the Biden administration, you know, arguably sort of jump-started the proceedings in the provider's case again. Well, as you said in the beginning, this case dealt with procedural issues in the Texas abortion law rather than squarely on row, although arguably the question about whether these types of laws can be crafted around what is a constitutional right hits the issue of Roe and, and whether that is in fact a protected constitutional right and if states can get around it. But we still have another huge abortion case coming up in December. And do you think that there were any tea leaves to be read from this oral argument as we head into DOPS? Basically none. Um, and I think perhaps it was because the conservative justices regarded this case as so separate from Dobbs that they're likely willing to allow it to go forward. On, you know, that it's really isolated to the enforcement mechanism and we can deal with the, the actual abortion part later that they were willing to allow it to go forward. Well, we could spend another hour talking about the abortion case, but we will hold the rest of that commentary yeah. until uh, perhaps December when we get yeah, to Yeah, we've got plenty of time to talk about abortion uh, this year. Right, uh, and we'll continue to be for a while. So let's turn to another major case this term regarding the Second Amendment, Bruin. Um, if you could give us the background on the case and really 
whether you thought this case, there was a lot of hubbub in the media. Uh, everyone was talking about this case and Second Amendment coming before the court. And it was one of the major grants um, that they made that they were perhaps hesitant to make before this term. So there was a lot of expectations riding on it. Um, want to get your readout from oral argument. Yeah, so this case is a challenge to a New York law that requires anyone who wants to carry a concealed handgun to show what's called proper cause for the license. And in New York, proper cause means that the applicant has to show a particular need to defend himself. It's not enough to say, I want to be able to carry a gun to defend myself or my property. And there are a handful of similar laws around the country. And the case really boils down to the sec, you know, the, both sides agree that the Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms. And the challengers say, this means you have a right to carry a handgun outside the home for self-defense. The state says, yeah, there's a right to carry a gun outside the home, but the state can put restrictions on it. And the question before the court is, like, who's right? And yes, there were a lot of expectations. And, you know, I, I think gun, gun rights, there were a lot of expectations. Gun rights supporters have been waiting for this argument for over a decade. The Supreme Court in 20, in the Supreme Court in 2008 and 2010 said there's a right to carry a gun. The Supreme Court in 2008 and 2010 said there's a right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. It applies to the District of Columbia. It applies to all the other states. And gun rights supporters have been like, okay, what else? Like, what about outside the home? Um, if they thought this was going to be a sweeping decision on the right to bear arms outside the home, I think they're likely to be disappointed. It looked like this was going to be sort of the first of maybe several decisions on gun rights rather than a definitive ruling. I think that gun rights supporters had hoped that, you know, particularly with Justice Barrett on the court, that they might have a solid majority for a more expansive ruling, but she didn't necessarily seem like she was there. It seemed like the, the, the New York law, it was hard to see the New York law surviving. But on the other hand, both Justice Barrett and the Chief Justice didn't seem ready to go much beyond that. They, they both talked a lot about, well, could you carry a handgun, you know, at, on a university campus, in a bar? Justice Barrett gave the specific example. What about Times Square? on New Year's Eve. And in the end, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who you know, I think is someone who's probably ready for a more expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment, said, well, we, we really just need to decide about this law right now. And Paul Clement, who represented the, cha represented the challenger, said, yes, that's all you need to do now. This was another oral argument that was fascinating to listen to. There were lots of great hypotheticals. To your point, the justices delved into a little bit where perhaps a state could impose restrictions. And this was about the state of New York, of course, but there was some discussion about New York City in particular and why New York City may have different interests than perhaps upstate New York and guns have different roles in those places and whether restrictions could be imposed on the subway or to your point on college campuses, there was a little bit of Ivy League shade throwing or perhaps the reverse when they were talking about Columbia having a campus versus NYU. But what, what was the, the NYU exchange? Yeah, so Justice K 
Kagan was picking up on a hypothetical from the Chief Justice and said, well, you know, well, what about, what about, could you, could you have a gun on the university campus? Could you have a, a gun on the NYU campus? And, well, I'll let Paul Clement answer for himself. Manhattan. The They're Chief Justice County. started with universities, and you said that that would be all right. Did you mean that? Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I, I did mean cause, that. Because that's open for, you know, anybody can walk around the NYU campus. Well, NYU doesn't have much of a campus. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would go back to New York, and I think you'll find that that's wrong. <laughs> Similarly, the Columbia campus. Yeah, that was a good moment during oral argument. So how do you think the court's going to come out here? It's going to be a narrow ruling. I think it's likely to be a narrow ruling, and they'll leave some of the, the questions about sensitive places, as they called them, for for later. You know, I think that there will be no shortage of, of gun cases to sort of bubble up through the system to the extent they're not already there and come to the court. All right, two down, one more major case to go before we let you go. Let's talk about Ramirez. This case also got a lot of press. This is about um, another part of the First Amendment, uh, religious rights, and about a, an inmate. Again, we find ourselves in Texas. So give us a little bit of background on this case. Yes, the, the Texas Solicitor General, Judd Stone, collected a lot of the little, the little quills that they give to lawyers who argue at the Supreme Court um, this month. This is the case of a Texas inmate who wants to be able to have his pastor touch him and pray out loud while he's being executed. And the question of whether an inmate can have a spiritual advisor in the execution chamber has come to the court in a, a few times the last two and a half years uh, in an emergency posture. This case was a slightly different issue, but the justices in September put Ramirez's execution on hold and then fast-tracked his appeal to resolve this question on the merits. And it was a little bit interesting because this happened right after the September 1 order in the Texas SB8 case. And so, you know, I feel like maybe this might have been a little bit of a reaction to the blowback to the SB8 order. Like, okay, you want us to, to not resolve these things on the, on the shadow docket? Like, we'll, we'll, we'll fast track it. Yeah, they seem to be moving, show, at least showing us that they can move quickly, which could be a double-edged sword for them and for the press corps, as we've seen. But so what is Texas's argument here against having spiritual advisors touch an inmate uh, and be in the room with them at the end? So they have two sort of two different sets of arguments. One set is procedural, in essence, that Ramirez has raised these arguments too late. He's just trying to delay his execution. And relatedly, he should have but didn't properly raise these arguments in the prison grievance proceedings. He didn't do what's called exhaust his claims in the prison grievance proceedings. And so there was actually a lot of very technical discussion about when he had raised these particular claims and at what stage. And then there were the substantive arguments, which boiled down to the idea that allowing this uh, sort of outside spiritual advisor in the execution chamber increases the chance that something's going to go wrong, that the spiritual advisor will be in the way, he'll accidentally mess up the IV when he's touching the inmate, you know, maybe he'll, he'll try and interfere actively, you know, with the execution. 
um, that they are trying to sort of make the execution go as smoothly as possible. Were the justices receptive to that argument? Uh, can I before can I like introduce the the clip of Judd Stone before we do that? Okay, so yep, and so here's Texas Solicitor General Judd Stone explaining why the state is opposed to having a spiritual advisor pray out loud and lay hands. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Petitioner has twice received the extremely exceptional remedy of having his execution halted at the last minute. Each time he litigates around an execution date, he receives another lengthy reprieve. This court should not countenance the delay of a fourth execution date. Ramirez claims that he has consistently sought the same relief, namely his pastor's touch and audible prayer, throughout his piecemeal litigation. There are two problems with that assertion. First, it's false. Ramirez disclaimed in 2020 that he wanted pastoral touch. And in April 2021, Texas gave Ramirez all that he had been looking for at that time, his pastor's presence in the execution chamber. Second, Ramirez's assertion makes his litigation conduct inexplicable. If Ramirez was aware for the entire time that he wanted pastoral touch and audible prayer, then he has no excuse for failing to timely raise and grieve those requests. Ramirez tries to excuse both his failures to both his delays and his failures to exhaust by claiming he only learned he wouldn't be permitted touch or audible prayer in June and August of this year, respectively. Again, false. So some of the justices were, were definitely receptive to the state's argument, and they'd been divided on the question of having spiritual advisors in the room at all. Um, it was also interesting because we had some of the conservative justices talking about how you assess the sincerity of Ramirez's religious beliefs, which is not something you usually hear them talking about in other contexts. Certainly applicable in other contexts. So what was the inmate's argument here, and how were the justices receptive to the inmate's argument? So the inmate's argument was basically this is not rocket science, that Texas used to allow until quite recently chaplains to touch the inmate, pray out loud, and that they've had recent executions in Alabama and the sort of spate of federal executions that have allowed audible prayer, and at least in one case, allowed the spiritual advisor to touch the inmate, and that all of those went off without any problems. Um, Here is Seth Kretzer, who is the lawyer for Ramirez, explaining some of the issues as, as he sees them. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Across Texas's 572 executions spanning four decades, the state's policy was to allow a spiritual advisor to be present in the execution chamber to lay hands on a condemned inmate and to audibly pray. In 2019, that longstanding practice changed suddenly when the state chose to forbid any religious advisor from the execution chamber. Ramirez and other inmates fought to preserve the religious exercise rights to spiritual advisor presence, and while these challenges proceeded, the state withdrew Ramirez's 2020 execution date in exchange for withdrawal of his Section 1983 petition. 
Six months later, the state reset Ramirez's execution, followed two months after that by a reversion to allowing in-chamber spiritual advisor presence. The state then waited to reveal months more to reveal first a ban on touch, only later it banned the spoken word. Either the state merely delayed revealing these new restrictions, or worse, added them piecemeal while Ramirez sought redress through the grievance system. Either way. So how do you think this case is going to come down? So the federal government actually argued as a friend of the court in support of neither party, and it staked out this middle ground it said that we don't really see a problem with audible prayer, um, particularly it takes that sort of a middle ground. It said that audible prayer in particular was less problematic and that touching at least to the point of an IV might be less objectionable, but it said that the Bureau of Prisons, you know, if it were asked about this, would probably have substantial concerns because of the IV about having the minister touch the inmate once the drugs are administered. And so maybe that would would give the justices an ability to kind of stake out a middle ground. The interesting thing is the justices in this case just issued a very straightforward order. We, we don't know how any of them voted. We know a fair amount about the justices' positions on earlier spiritual advisors. Um, the, the key vote in this case actually seems like it is likely Justice Neil Gorsuch, um, who did not say anything during this oral argument. So it, it, it could be a little bit hard to game. All right. Well, briefly, before we let you go, because this was such a huge sitting, um, I just want to ask you kind of big picture, because we're we're still learning more about Justice Barrett on the bench now and what will be her first full term on the bench. She missed the October sitting and, and took her seat after October last year. Justice Thomas is continuing to dive in with the first question. Breyer is Briaring with his kind of off the wall hypotheticals. Kagan is Kaganing with her rapid fire hypotheticals. And, and all of this is happening in a room where, you know, the public is still not allowed in, but you get to be in the room and you get a chance to see it all. So what are your thoughts on the November argument session now that we've had, you know, two full sessions in the courtroom? I mean, one thing that you know, that is becoming clear is that we had all thought that this idea of adding the seriatim questioning at the end was intended to ensure that Justice Thomas remained an active questioner. And clearly that is not how it has cashed out to use like the new term from the November sitting. This is like the new, my friend on the other side. Um, I had never, I'm not sure I'd ever really heard that term used, but now it's been used like three times in the November sitting. Justice Kagan used it and then a couple of lawyers adopted it. Um, so it's possible that they have just adopted this procedure to give them more flexibility with the time. And as a result, the bench is a little less hot. I feel like they think that, you know, they know they're going to get an, they know that they're going to get time to ask their questions and so they don't need to be sort of poised, ready to pounce to ask their question uh, as soon as some an, a lawyer finishes answering or as soon as somebody else finishes asking a question. Um, the, the 
net result of that is that the arguments are long, um, but clearly they don't have a problem with that. And you know, these are important issues, and they should take the time that they think they need to hear oral arguments uh, in these important issues. I mean, I, there's no reason that they should sort of set these artificial limits, like we're going to only hear an hour um, on some of these issues that affect that affect people's lives. And is there anything you see in the courtroom, like exchanges or glances or laughs that the rest of us aren't getting to see? You know, it's funny because Justice Breyer was really in rare form uh, in the last oral argument of the November sitting. He had this hypothetical. I'm just, we're going to go ahead and play it because I'm not really sure I can capture it. You know, it's right up there with the, the pet oyster. It, it was about uh, signs for a fried kale shop. All right, so uh, I'll tell you why we uh, let the uh, home, the, the, my own kale shop, I sell fried kale, uh, and right outside I want a big picture of kale that lights up. Okay? It's mine. This is my shop. I want to decorate it the way I want. Strong interest. I don't have the same interest in what the billboard 40 miles outside the town says about my kale shop. Okay, there's your difference. And uh, the grandfather is because we love grandfathers. Okay. And so what you can't tell from the the audio is that Justice Thomas and Justice Alito were were really laughing. The Chief Justice was kind of chuckling. Justice Kagan was not even remotely amused by this type of Kagan, I don't know if she thought it was just like taking up too much time. She's the um, queen of hypotheticals, so she has a high standard, I suppose, for what those hypotheticals are. And fried kale shops perhaps don't meet it. Who knows? Exactly. Exactly. You know, maybe she's not a fan of kale. Maybe she prefers spinach. So. <laughs> All right, Amy. Well, thank you for letting us turn the mic around on you. As always, we always learn something. Thank you, Katie. Great to talk to you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.